and welcome to this episode of Not a Lady, a Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman podcast. This is Kelly. And I'm Sarah. And this is episode 11 of season one, titled The Prisoner. You had your birthday. Yep. A year older. Are we allowed to say... how old I am? I was going to say, are we allowed to say that you're a, a quarter of a century now? I'm officially a quarter of a century, which means that I'm officially having a quarter life crisis. Not really. As opposed, to, like as opposed to unofficially having one. <laughs> yeah. I just like the way it sounds. Also, there's a band, if anybody knows, Judah and the Lion. They have a, a song called Quarter Life Crisis, and I like it, so... You're still on holiday break. Not for much longer, but yep. And I'm getting ready to start a new job, but we'll talk more about that when I actually have things to say about it. I'm still in the paperwork stage. <laughs> well... Before we talk about The Prisoner, let's flash back to the episode that we talked about last time. (laughs) Running Ghost. Running Ghost. And let's talk about some lessons. Lessons. That's not French. Okay. (laughs) I just was saying it funny. (laughs) Oh, I totally was believing. I was like, oh, really? I didn't realize it was so close. I mean, no. Yeah, technically it is, but it's spelled differently. But no, I was just being trying to be funny. We had some great write-ins. Yeah, a lot of you wrote in. We appreciate it. I'm gonna. I'll read the first one on Instagram from Rainy the Ultimate Ginge. Love your handle, by the way. <laughs> Rainy wrote in saying, "I think what can be learned most is how hard work, teamwork, and dedication can lead to great things. The whole crew could have given up and let Sully just live his life with paralysis, but they refused and did all they could to rehabilitate him, which is true. She (laughs) then adds, but also, the town needs to stop trusting these shady dudes that show up all the time (laughs) offering investment opportunities. All I can think of the telemarketing calls with, we've been trying to reach you about your car's extended warranty. (laughs) Exactly. That this is like the 1800s version of that. <laughs> it's true. You know what's really funny to me though is like those of you who've been following us, I ended up in 2020 coming back to America after living abroad and I get those calls all the time and I don't have <laughs> a <like> car. <laughs> <laughs> and so I'm like, sure. Yeah. And they're always like, this is your final call. You're like, sounds good. But it is true. We've had a, a number of guys at this point where we're like, Okay, Dr. Mike seems to be sniffing out the the dishonesty, but the rest are quite gullible, if you ask me. Which is kind of ironic, considering most of the town didn't want to trust a word Dr. Mike, the newcomer, said. But all these other newcomers, it's because they're men. You know what? That's what it is. Yep. They're like, For oh, sure. it's a guy. We can trust him. But a woman comes to town and they're like, she's a witch. <laughs> yeah. And then to just go along with that one, Petulis added, This is true. Also, Mike needs to stop giving her bed to everyone in town. And she needs a bigger place. Which made me laugh because even though she got the clinic, the number of times that she has ended up with patients (laughs) in her small one-bedroom homestead. (laughs) Which originally was because she didn't have the clinic. And then I think about this scenario, I'm like, that probably wouldn't have been appropriate anyway because it's such a, a close friend of the family that they basically had to be with him at all times and so what a better place to do that than the homestead you know 
can't imagine she would be driving back and forth to town. Driving? Riding? Riding back and forth to town? You, you drive a carriage or a okay. wagon. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it is interesting to think about. Do the totally Nicole one under the okay. Diana one. Diane. Dianella? Diane, Diane L.A. LA. <laughs> we also have another write-in here from totally Nicole on Instagram who said that there were quite a few lessons in this episode. She says, I definitely think that Michaela learned that she loves Sully and can't hide her feelings any longer. I also think that Sully learned that Mike and the kids, specifically the kids, have become his family and would do pretty much anything for him. I also, (laughs) I learned that Joe Lando was really good at not moving his legs. (laughs) Which I'm sure that was pretty funny to shoot. (laughs) They're like, okay, just don't do anything. (laughs) Or just like, can you twitch Twitch. your toe? (laughs) Right. Twitch your big toe right at this moment. Yeah. What are your thoughts on Michaela loving Sully at this point? So this goes along with Diana or Diana LA, like we just mentioned. Um, she she said, I think this is when Michaela knew she was in love with Sully. I think my perspective of this is different than some people's because. Well, first of all, everyone knows on this podcast that I'm not the overly romantic one of the two sisters. However, that being said, that doesn't mean I don't enjoy a well-told romance in a story. However, I think people are very quick to throw around like, oh, these two characters are in love now. And I think there's a big difference between two characters like being attracted to each other, having feelings for each other, and then being in love. And to me, like, to say, like, these two characters are in love is really saying, like, oh, they're ready to commit to a relationship, to, you know, pursuing a relationship together. And so, personally, I don't feel that Dr. Mike and Sully, like, I would not say that they are in love right now. I would say from the pilot episode, they have been attracted to each other. Not least because they're two very attractive people. (laughs) But I think there's a lot to be said for their developing feelings for each other, but they're still getting to know each other. I don't think either of them is at the point where they're like, I am ready to commit to this person and spend my life with them. I like actually what Petulis added earlier. So she added for a lesson, I believe Sully starts having real feelings for Mike during the Bad Water episode and that Mike starts having real feelings for Sully on this one. And I kind of like that perspective on it. Like we're, if we're looking at their love story as this long timeline. Yeah, like a timeline. Like I like more of the idea like as they're gradually getting to know the best and some hopefully, you know, the worst of each other at different points and learning what they value. And, and I do like the idea like this is where episode Sully definitely sees how much he means to this family and in turn how much they mean to them. Like, I like the idea of that developing into, you know, recognizing of feelings, but I wouldn't say that they're in love yet, you know, because there's a lot more to being in love than just saying, you know, like, I didn't kill someone for you. (laughs) I think it ties in too to a message that we got from our friend, a grateful fan, who mentioned that, I think it was hard for Dr. Mike to realize she had healed someone so that he could hurt someone else. I don't think that that was ever in the realm of possibility. Michaela learned that we sometimes put people on pedestals only to sometimes be disappointed when people go through their own trials and have to realize what's deep down inside them. When they're squeezed, we may be surprised at what comes out. I think that really ties in well to this 
this idea of like their perspectives of each other like I'm all for how their perspectives of each other are growing and obviously there's attraction and romance woven within that but it's not solely about like oh in this episode Dr. Mike figured out she's in love with Sully no I think she realized to what a a high regard she holds him into and I, I think about did you ever read uh, the John Green book, uh, Paper Towns? Yeah. There's a quote in that book, and, and I don't even remember the context totally of the quote in the book, but the quote was, what a treacherous thing it is to believe that a person is more than a person. Right. And I remember being so struck by that because the the recognition that to err is to be human, I, d- I don't know what that's from other than uh, it was in The Road to El Dorado. <laughs> Do you remember that movie? (laughs) But like people, you know, if we hold people to such a high regard that they can't be flawed, and we talk about that a lot in this podcast, like characters being flawed and making decisions that were like, I don't like that they made that decision, but they're human and they make mistakes and they're not perfect. And so I think for me, when when I look at this episode in particular, that's where I see a lot of growth for their relationship. I think, thankfully, the episode turns around in the end and Sully, we think he's out on this revenge plot, you know, to murder (laughs) plot. But in the end, he realizes this is about something bigger than himself and and he doesn't end up killing. Though Petulis made a good observation, (laughs) also something she said she learned. I also learned that bad visuals can't ruin a good show, lol. That last scene with the white buffalo... When the white buffalo <laughs> kills the guy made me giggle like crazy, which, yeah, I don't think we talk, yes. <laughs> we, we don't talk about too much. Like, the show was made in the 90s, so we give them props where we can. <laughs> yes, we do. Yes, we do. And then other times we're just like, yeah, like, we understand what you were trying to show, but it is kind of, it's kind of funny. But it is funny. The message was not lost for sure. Right. Thanks again, guys, for writing in. It's really fun reading all your responses, and we've been getting a lot lately, so it's been really nice. Don't forget that you can write in for lessons for our next coming episode anywhere on social media, on our email, on our website, which we will share more information with at the end, as we always do. So, are you ready to talk about The Prisoner? Yes, I'm ready. Season 1, episode 11. Aired on the 13th of March, 1993. It was directed by Chuck Bowman, which this is his fourth directorial stint out of 32. The last episode that he directed is A Cowboy's Lullaby. And it was written by Joseph Anderson. And this is his second writing credit on Dr. Quinn, Medicine Woman. But I did already mention that He has worked as a producer or will work as a producer for over 60 episodes of Dr. Quinn. So he's pretty present. And he also, the last episode that we would have talked about him would have been also the Cowboys Lullaby. And before we start talking about the episode, I should mention that in the logical viewing order which if you've been with us from the beginning, you know what that means. But basically the order chronologically in which the story goes this episode is recommended as episode five directly after the visitor which is currently sitting in episode three yeah well i'm sure we'll talk about that later in the episode and i think it actually makes sense too uh because in the very opening scene 
we're in the homestead, we're doing chores, and a discussion about indoor plumbing comes up because Colleen and Dr. Mike are doing wash, and Colleen mentions that Dr. Mike's mom, their, you know, newly titled grandma, mentioned that in Boston they had indoor plumbing, which makes sense if we know that, oh, the episode that came right before this was the grandmother visiting. Right. They then proceed to have a a water fight that actually looks very fun between the three kids and Dr. Mike. In the midst of the family fun, we flash over to the reservation where we see uh, Cloud dancing, playing some sort of uh, flute kind of pipe instrument, and he's back. We haven't seen him since the epidemic. General Custer and his 7th Cavalry are up on a hill preparing to attack this village, which we would assume that this village is on... On the reservation, right. Yeah, and we hear very quickly that Custer sees himself as some sort of avenging angel because he asks how many people were killed in the wagon party to which one of his officers replies eight and he orders them to attack we don't actually see which i'm grateful for we don't necessarily see the direct attack we see the charge to the attack but when the gunshots actually start going off we flash to what we assume is a hunting party in the woods led by black kettle sully's there the only one not on a horse so again some context that makes sense yeah by the way i just gotta say uh, Black Kettle is riding a Palomino that is basically my dream horse. There you go. I like that this show, it doesn't feel the need to translate every time Cheyenne is spoken. Because I think the actors do a good enough performance. And as we get to know the characters as well, that we know what's being said without actually understanding. At least my interpretation of it. You can tell me if you had a different interpretation. But Sully wants to go with to help fight. And Black Kettle kind of says, you know, this is not your fight. We need to protect our people. You can only help us if you're on the outside. Stay. And the rest of the, the hunting party goes heads back in the direction of the village and the gunshots. And we see that actually Dr. Mike, back on the homestead, also hears the gunshots. And then we roll the main theme and intro with no narration. Right. Without getting any indication quite yet of what has taken place and or the aftermath, we are in town. Actually, I think we're probably at the immigrant camp, which we haven't seen in a while, which also helps if we flash back to that logical order. But Olive is looking for any girls who can dance because she's going to host a hurdy-gurdy. There's kind of this funny moment where she's picking who she, who she thinks should be able to learn, and she picks everyone there. Except one girl who just looks kind of homely. I like it. Grace is there and she says, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. And they include this girl instead of leaving her out. But we have mentioned in the last few episodes we haven't seen Olive in a while. So getting Olive back is a pretty main part of the story in this episode. I like a couple things about this scene. I like, as you said, we haven't been in the immigrants camp in a while, but we can tell that some time has gone by because in the background it looks like they're building some sort of housing or something, which um, when we would have seen them last would have kind of been like the epidemic. They were all kind of intense and stuff. Right. 
Olive's recruiting, it kind of makes me laugh. And this is actually where we will meet the character of Ingrid technically for the first time, though in the non-logical viewing order, we have met Ingrid previously in the Law of the Land, and this is where it's kind of gonna throw off the whole timeline, so we just have to tell ourselves that it's earlier. But I feel like because of Law of the Land, we feel like we already know her quite well. Yeah, and that's why I said earlier, like, we'll probably come back to this just because there's a, a few things that happen with her in this episode where you're kind of like, uh, I thought we had an understanding of who she is and the fact that Matthew likes her. <laughs> yeah. If you don't know about the logical viewing order, this seems like the biggest plot hole of all time. <laughs> yeah, definitely. At the Mercantile, Brian is so seriously contemplating what candy to buy. And can I be honest with you, when I saw this scene, I was like, boy, this, this kid has a sweet tooth like nobody's business. It reminds me of Kelly. <laughs> All right, don't come for me. Although I definitely had a piece of cheesecake right before we started this. <laughs> don't lie. You know, you have a sweet tooth. Lots of people have a sweet tooth. I know. I just feel like as a medical professional, it's probably not something you're supposed to be known for, but. It's a prime example of for your birthday celebration, we went to like this bakery place and you were like, do I want this or do I want this? <laughs> but this I is also that. really good. Like it was basically the same scene. <laughs> I forgot that. That's funny that you said that. Yeah, but Brian's trying to decide on candy. And I think I've said it before, but I just like him and Lauren's relationship, even though this isn't a great scene, mostly because Lauren's a grumpy old man. But yeah, actually, so Lauren tells Brian, why is it taking you so long to decide this isn't the Louisiana purchase? Oh, yeah. Which I was like, what? And I feel like most people like know Oh, the Louisiana Purchase. That is where the American government bought the territory of Louisiana from the French, which doubled the size of the United States. And it was a, a lot of the land west of the Mississippi. It, the actual purchase took place on July 4th, 1803, which I think is kind of cool since, you know, Independence Day was already, you know, July 4th. That's when the Declaration of Independence was signed. But I think what a lot of people don't know is the Louisiana Purchase actually was quite controversial at the time. Thomas Jefferson was president, and there were a lot of people that believe he kind of went against the Constitution by making the purchase kind of the way that he did it. And part of the motivation behind the purchase was Spain actually had a lot of claim to some of that land, but the French currently had it and at the time america was a little bit worried that napoleon bonaparte was going to attack the louisiana territory area and try and expand his empire so part of this purchase was to appease the french there was a lot of governmental details that i probably don't understand but I know that some people were actually worried that even though America had quote-unquote purchased the land from France, that Spain still might have some claim to that land. And so it was questionable whether the actual purchase itself was completely lawful. And I guess we can say blessing for America that it all worked out for us, but uh, it certainly makes for an interesting perspective when you hear... Lauren go, you know, it's not the Louisiana Purchase. Like, you don't have to think about it so hard. Like, what are going to be the consequences if I pick this one and not that one? Right. Olive and some of the hurdy-gurdy girls come into the mercantile, and she's telling them to pick out material, definitely not anything red. 
But this is where, you know, I think if you're watching in order, it gets confusing because then Olive has this brief conversation with Lauren where she says, you know, it's a good thing I came back, yeah. you know, because these books are out of order and everything. And yeah. I'm kind of like, because at first I was like, where did she go? Like, we haven't seen her in a couple episodes, but there's no telling where she actually went. But I think this is her coming back from the West, her ranching escapades on the West. This is like the first time she's come back. And and here we also see Matthew come in and he's eyeing Ingrid, you know, and, and, and all is trying to ask for his help, but he seems very preoccupied with the fact that there's a pretty girl making eyes at him across the room. Yeah, exactly. Brian has a, a little conversation with Dr. Mike, which is kind of sad because he says, you know, I don't think Mr. Bray likes me very much, in which Dr. Mike explains that she thinks he's missing his wife, and, and Brian can understand that because he misses his mom. But I like in that where, he, where Brian says he's missing his mom, where Dr. Mike says, oh, yeah, I miss her too, because it just reminds yeah. us that, you know, they got really close during their time together. Right. They're looking at harmonicas when that conversation happens. And, well, two things. Earlier, you mentioned she says nothing red. Do you know why she tells the girls nothing red? I figure it's probably associated with being more promiscuous or something. Yeah. So women who wore red were usually prostitutes or actresses, which the early actresses were kind of looked down upon as being part-time actresses, part-time courtesans or so yeah that's definitely why and the I'm gonna reveal a little known fact that I feel like most you I don't know if you even know this about me but I know most I know no one in the internet knows this about me do you know that the harmonica like if you would ask me like if you could learn any instrument in the world what instrument would you want to learn how to play did you know that my answer would be the harmonica interesting can't say that I knew that do you know when I fell in love with the harmonica no. When I was seven years old and I saw the movie Free Willy. That makes sense. Because the kid in the movie plays the harmonica and that's how he bonds with Free Willy. And I, right. wa- I wanted the ability to bond with all animals and I believed that harmonicas had that power. <laughs> but Kelly, so I was doing some reading about harmonicas actually and they were really, the harmonica that we know today probably wouldn't show up until like the early 19th century. But prior to that, there was something called a French harp or a mouth organ that were pretty much the earlier versions of a harmonica. But Kelly, did you know that the harmonica was actually a medical tool that at one point physicians would recommend to people being rehabilitated from having COPD because of the use of the lungs and the strengthening of like the diaphragm? So I didn't know that. It makes sense because it's, there are spirometers that they use for people that have obstructive and restrictive lung diseases that I guess I can see being a similar idea, but I I did not know that. Now, I just, I just wanted to sound so smart to you telling you something medical, but I'm going to be honest. I don't know what COPD is. (laughs) (laughs) You sounded good. It is chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. So that is one of the, I just mentioned obstructive and restrictive. It's one of the obstructive lung diseases. Very common with, with smokers. So you still sounded smart though. (laughs) I I was like really excited when I was reading about it. I was like, I can say something medical. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, the cavalry then enters the town. And obviously this is post uh, that opening attack that we saw. 
this is the seventh cavalry we assume they never say this but i feel like i've mentioned general custer before briefly but if it's all right with you i want to talk about him in a little more detail since we're actually going to get to know him a little bit better in this episode right this actor who plays his full name george armstrong custer is played by darren dalton which he is not the same custer we saw in the epidemic really he's yeah it's not the same guy i swear it was the same guy it's because custer has a very unique look and they get the look down yeah right (laughs) interesting it's probably the chops and the mustache and all that Hmm. so i think most people know custer in relationship to his end (laughs) let's put it that way is it spoilers if it's historical events (laughs) no I think people know Custer died at the Battle of Little Bighorn and he he was killed by a native attack. But I think a lot of people probably don't know a lot about the beginning of his life. Uh, one of the interesting things, he fought in the Civil War, but actually prior to fighting in the Civil War, when he joined the U.S. military in 1861... So this is where our timeline's probably going to be a little bit weird. But anyway, did you know that Custer graduated last in his class in U.S. Military Academy? Is that like the thing they say about like medical school and stuff, though? Like the the person that graduated last in medical school is still a doctor? You know, doesn't matter. (laughs) That's a good point. I don't know if we have any people out there who are military people and can tell us what does that mean being last in your class. In right. the military. I mean, yeah, I guess he still passed everything, but I don't know. Good, good point. <laughs> That's the thing I cling to, right? I'm like, well, as long as I'm still passing, it doesn't matter what place I am in the class. <laughs> right. That probably gives people a lo- not a lot of hope. In <laughs> not a lot of confidence in your ab- ability. Care professionals of the world, yeah. <laughs> anyway. I mean, there are some of us I don't think who could ever do it. We wouldn't even make it to the graduation. So that is, I think that's actually a valid, like, hey, don't knock it too bad. (laughs) Right. So Custer first rose to prominence as a uh, soldier during the Civil War. During the Civil War, he was promoted to major. He was one of the youngest men to become a general before the age of 25. However... After the volunteers disbanded upon the end of the Civil War, his title actually reverted to captain, which is going to play into what you hear later. He was promoted to lieutenant colonel, but he no longer carried the title of general, but he still liked to go by general. Right. Um, and so that's going to play into Horace later, says like, he's sense. not even a real general, which is kind of true, though he did hold the position of general during the Civil War. I think something that's really important that plays into, Custer was assigned to go out west. The 7th Cavalry, they were in the Colorado, Kansas territories monitoring peace between natives and frontiersmen in March through July of 1867. But Custer really struggled with Indian warfare. It wasn't like the the battles that he was used to, obviously, in the Civil War. And he didn't adapt really well. And so there are a lot of testimonials and letters and reflections 
where people write about because he didn't adapt well, he actually had a couple instances of behaving really erratically down to like shooting at one of his own Native American scouts during an incident and then being like, oh, sorry, man, my madness took over me, but I'm good now. Mm. Let's shake hands. And the, the man that happened to was um, a Native American scout who actually some people say was a true friend to Custer was like a man that he actually really trusted depended on and respected and that native's name was Bloody Knife and it's really interesting if you want to read more about Custer's relationship with Bloody Knife it's fascinating to see like how can you be persecuting an entire race of people but then actually have one of your most trusted soldiers be a person of that same race I guess Custer's fascinating to me as a historical figure just because I think he goes to show that people are not all one thing. They're not 100% villains and they're not 100% heroes. Though after Custer's death, he was definitely viewed as a hero by a lot of the white European Americans of that day and age. I think now he's definitely more villainized as as being, you know, this really ruthless, heartless guy who, you know, led his men into killing women and children. So I'm looking forward to diving in more in this episode to how they have chose to script him. Right. All that to say, the 7th Cavalry enters town. We see Cloud Dancing is tied up and being more or less dragged behind a horse. And we see another soldier who's wounded we see another native who looks like he might be dead already over the side of a horse walks right up to jake slicker and says hey i need you to tend my wounded which my first assumption based on what we've seen with dr mike is usually when this happens to her this is not new right she she's the medical professional and she's not the first one consulted but usually i feel like she kind of like makes a scene or like is running towards the situation. She she obviously does go, but I was surprised that when that first happened, she wasn't immediately trying to be involved. You were surprised that they made it through the door before she said anything? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And especially at this point, like, she has a clinic. And I think actually the show missed an opportunity where he's <laughs> like, no women allowed in here, ma'am. And I was like, surely... She's going to say, I'm not a woman, I'm a doctor, right? I was like ready for the iconic line. And then she goes, I'm Dr. Quinn, I'm a surgeon. Yes, yes. I found this interesting as well, right? Like, I don't, yeah, I don't know why that's her first choice of words other than maybe we're still developing the character at this point, but. But I also remembered, I was like, wait, doesn't he know her from the epidemic? But then I remembered he never saw her in the epidemic. And she was sick. They were looking for cloud dancing and she was upstairs super sick. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. So she hasn't actually officially (laughs) met Custer. And then I actually like that a throwback to the pilot, Custer's like, oh, yeah. Shivington told me about you. And yeah. we're like, oh, yeah. remember Shivington? Who was pulled out of the West after the horrors of the Sand Creek Massacre. You can only guess what he has told Custer about this crazy white woman. <laughs> Nothing good. Exactly. And even, you know, then he, he asks Jake's permission, like, oh, like, is she allowed to say? And Jake's like, oh, like, if she doesn't get in the way or whatever. And I'm like whatever they also ask robert e to make chains i forget what's the word they use they don't say chains but it's irons in which he actually very politely in my opinion refuses 
or says that whenever he does make them, they always seem to break, so it would be no point for them to get him to make them. I don't love the reason for the exchange but I think the writing is so good and the performance is so good because I remembered watching this part before I could have sworn that like Robert E said like oh after the war you know after the slaves were freed like I made a commitment never to make a chain again or like after being in chains myself you know I knew that I would never want to do that to another human being. Like, that's what in my head I was like, oh yeah, he has a reason. But that's not what he says. He just says, you know, oh, I'm not very good at making chains. They always break. But you can read into it, into the performance and into the way the, the line is scripted. That yeah, like he has made a commitment to himself never to to associate himself with symbols of slavery and of oppression and of harm to another human being and I don't know I just I thought that was so good and then another performance peak that I just saw was so good shout out to one of my theater coaches Nicole Stratton at the Logos Theater Custer has a line and he says now three times Dr. Mike wants to obviously like a good surgeon wants to help those who are in the most dire need of medical attention first and then work her way to those who need less immediate attention later. And Custer's not having any of that. She's like, this man's gonna die. He's like, I don't care. Help my men first. And then he holds a gun to Cloud Dancing's head and he says, or this man dies now. And he says now three times, which if you think about that on a script, like literally the line is now, 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 right? But something that Nicole Stratton taught me in performance, and I'm a theater teacher too, right? So is that anytime you have the same word repeated, you never perform that one word with the same voice. And the way that the actor who plays Custer does those three nows, I just thought were really, really well performed. Because each now is saying something different. One's an order, one's a threat, and then the last one is almost like, I dare you not to do what I'm telling you and to, to doubt that I'm going to follow through with this. Any Anyone out there who, who loves theater or performances, like always look for those moments where an actor can take one word and say it with such different emotion behind the performance. Props to the performer who actually delivered, and it could have just been like, no, 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 but it wasn't like that. It was each time he said that now, it was really different, and it was good. The townspeople are coming out of the church in our next scene, and there's a brief conversation between Jake and Horace about if the dog soldiers are going to attack the town, and this is where we get is talking about whether Custer is a real general or not. We also have a conversation between the Reverend and Olive in which he mentions that he thinks it's probably not the best time for the hurdy-gurdy to take place just with Custer's men there and the, the Indians and everything that's going on. And, you know, she says, no, it's a great time. And so he, he comes up with another reason. And this time his reason is that perhaps there shouldn't be dancing so close to the church. And I almost... <laughs> You almost wonder if we're going to turn into, like, Footloose. (laughs) (laughs) If this episode is going to be like that or not. But I love that she pulls out her scripture memory in in a verse from Ecclesiastes where the Bible says that there's also a time to dance. And that seems to be enough 
to convince the reverend that they'll have the hurdy-gurdy. Hurdy-gurdy is so weird to say. Every time I say it, I feel like unnatural. (laughs) Yeah. She also says, don't worry, reverend. They'll keep a Bible width apart, which I'm like, actually, that's not that far. (laughs) Oh, post, yeah, COVID. That's a good point. But okay, so you bring up hurdy-gurdy. I think most people, do you know of the hurdy-gurdy, the musical instrument? Yeah. Now that you say that, I have heard of that. Yeah, because there's a hurdy-gurdy that's the musical instrument that was like a hand-cranked instrument that was popular like in the 19th century or something. But the hurdy-gurdy that Olive is bringing up, which Olive kind of talks about it like this is above par respectable, but based on my research, not that it wasn't respectable, but I think it's, it's a little out of character for a hurdy-gurdy to be taking place in a town because I think hurdy-gurdies were actually invented for mining camps and so it would be lonely miners in like the 1860s and there would be a troop that would go to the mining camps and usually a hurdy company was made up of four girls usually German girls brought to America to entertain these lonely men by dancing with them for a fee. So it was above par in that it wasn't like they weren't prostitutes or anything because they would have a married couple that would act as chaperones for these girls. And then they would come with two or more musicians and they would host a hurdy-gurdy at a mining camp and men would get the opportunity to dance with these girls for money. So it's not like dance hall girls, which I think is what probably what we kind of feel like the reverend is kind of right. thinking like, is this like a dance hall? You know, go. are we going full Moulin Rouge? No, but I, Moulin Rouge also, I think it was actually prostitutes, but like, um, but I think it wasn't usually like, you know, high class, middle class people who were part of these usually they were mining towns saloon towns and it was entertainment and fun so and then what they what would usually happen is a lot of these girls would save their money retire from dancing and marry a minor and start a family out west it didn't go exactly the way olive is doing it but actually considering that olive also did you know we know that she was traveling and and working as a cattle rancher Maybe she did see one in a mining camp and that's where she kind of got the idea. Interesting, but I do think it's a a good idea. And the next scene we see, I don't know why they've like set up, I guess where they're building the the dance floor, the stage, whatever you want to call it for, the hurdy-gurdy is kind of where they're convening with all these girls and they're trying to make them look nice and they're doing hair and they're doing makeup. and, And like you said, Grace is there helping as well and of course Robert E. and Matthew are walking by working on the platform and of course Matthew and Ingrid are looking at each other once again at least we know that they do know of each other right it's not like he just picked this random girl to make eyes at because there's lots of pretty girls there right it's like they have interacted during the epidemic where he comforted her when her father died I think it's super fun that Robert E. actually knows her name is Ingrid because it makes me think that Robert E. probably has already made a connection with Hmm. the immigrants in a way that the rest of the town might not have, especially considering that he himself, as a black man, as one of the only black men in this town, 
is, you know, like he shares an outsiderness with them. And, and so he had the opportunity to get to know them better. It also could be that he's a blacksmith and maybe, you know, he interacts with everybody. Kind of like I, you know, I talked about Horace probably knows the town really well because everyone who needs something sent goes to Horace and everyone who has a horse or a wagon or anything iron needing goes to Robert E. This is true. We're at the clinic. The reverend is reading the Bible to the men who are there injured. Dr. Mike tries to get the reverend to tell Custer that he can't be treating people the way he is, namely his prisoners. And the reverend's response is, the church is neutral. Here's my question. Why is Dr. Mike asking the reverend? Because she feels he is in a position of influence that he'll be able to do something about it? Or because she wants some sort of insight on into what is the morally correct thing to do in this case, or she wants somebody else, you know, supporting her stance. I just think it's really interesting that she's, like, so adamant about trying to understand and or get his opinion, but but why do you think that she's asking him directly about it? He is a, a figure of leadership in the town. They don't have a sheriff. They don't have a governor. Who do they have? They have the reverend... Who is the man of most influence? Who is the man that people are going to trust his word? I guess it's just for me, it's like, um, okay, so let's say, you know, she makes a valid point and he agrees with her. Like, what is he going to do? Go to Custer and be like, I have such great influence that you can't make this happen and they're going to listen? Like, probably not. So is it just for her to feel like, I don't know. I just wondered. Well, I don't know. I mean, maybe it's to try and convince Custer because at this time, you know, she believes that Custer might be reasonable and respectful to a man. But also, if the reverend objects to what Custer's doing, I feel like the reverend could get other people in the town on board, right? Yeah, that, that's like the main reason I could why I thought she was doing it. If you condemn this, then other people in the town will also condemn it. And maybe Custer will listen to all of us because later she will say, if enough of us protest, then he'll have to do something different. So I think it's more of the Reverend's influence on the town than the Reverend's influence on Custer. But then the next thing we know... Sully's leading a negotiation where Black Kettle is and a bunch of his warriors are outside the clinic. I think a couple things in my head. First, I'm like, doesn't this break the res rules that we established in the pilot? And I know they say it's under a truce flag, so maybe that's why. But we've already established this. Custer kind of sees himself as an avenging angel right like we attacked your village and took men prisoners because your natives are attacking frontier wagons and stuff which it's established that oh those are renegades which the renegades are the dog soldiers based on both history and what we've kind of set up in the show is remember that treaty in the pilot that was signed that treaty was signed by Black Kettle, kind of established the reservation, but the dog soldiers disagreed and did not sign and did not live by. And so as revenge for the land being taken, they started killing settlers, which this is historically factual. And so then it's just a constant cycle of, you know, both killing each other, 
But what's interesting to me is they only demand Cloud Dancing's life, which my assumption is they never say this, but I guess the other guy must have died. I guess, yeah. Because... We never, we never hear about him again. When she, I guess when she didn't, wasn't able to tend to him immediately. Yeah, he died. But I have a couple weird things because I'm like Custer says, I think you're a liar that you don't know where the dog soldiers are. But then, so why is he keeping cloud dancing? It, I would take the chief, right? Because then someone is more likely to. I know for the story, we want it to be Cloud Dancing because Cloud Dancing is the friend, right? Like, he's the native that we've befriended. But I don't know. It, it Honestly, to me, it seems like more of a risk for Black Kettle to show up in the town and present himself to Custer and say, like, hey, we want our guy back. Well, I think it would have been difficult for them to just take Black Kettle, like, right there and then and there without a fight. Why not send Sully with the demands? Like, hey, Black Kettle wants... I mean, not that I'm saying that would work either, but... I mean, but Sully, yeah. I, I mean, yeah, immediately we have we have Sully being the mediator here again, and... And why do they think Cloud Dancing knows? I don't know. Historically, Custer and Black Kettle never met. They only met in battle. But I think what's really interesting is before Black Kettle leaves the conversation... Sully translates for him and he says to Custer, you're too young and foolish to live to be a wise old man, which is very much like foreshadowing Mm. of Custer's fate. Right. And then for some reason, Custer tells Dr. Mike that if Cloud Dancing doesn't give him the information he wants on the dog soldiers, he will execute him in two days. Next scene, we're at the homestead where Dr. Mike has made dinner and we're once again given a clue that this is pretty early in our viewing order because nobody really wants to eat what she made. Poor Dr. Mike. There's a little bit of hurdy-gurdy talk in which Mike says that she thinks Colleen is too young to participate. Before they can resolve it, there's a knock on the door and Jake needs Dr. Mike's help because the prisoner, hence the title of this Um, episode which is cloud dancing has been injured and so she does she goes into town and and sully's there and he says you know tell them you need me to translate you know and she's like he speaks english and he's like they don't know that which is very smart and so the the soldiers kind of reluctantly let sully in with dr mike but here's my question how were they planning on getting the information on the dog soldiers if they don't already have a translator or know that cloud dancing speaks english because that seems really dumb yeah i think that's the assumption is that we think they're really dumb (laughs) and we find out that cloud dancing has a dislocated shoulder and she being dr mike kind of gets jake and sully to help her do what we call a closed reduction anytime you have a dislocated joint in this case a shoulder there's a maneuver that you can do to put the humerus back into the socket, which this is really interesting to me because, I mean, today we would oftentimes I use an IV sedative or a local injection or something to put it back in because it's, it is, it can be very painful. I mean, they feel a lot of pressure. You're basically trying to put something back into its, its correct place, which when you do do that, there's immediate relief once you correct it, but it can be very painful to get it back into that point. And so we see here that cloud dancing i mean barely shows any sign of pain which tells us a lot about i think i feel that about everyone in a lot of these episodes really? yeah i guess it's because their pain right. tolerance which back then you know there's only so many things that 
you could do so. You either bite the bullet literally. <laughs> so, you know, and Dr. Mike mentions in this scene that she, she needs the chains off to examine him. One part I failed to mention is that while the soldiers do let Sully come in with her, one of them mentions that they're going to tell the general. And so at this point, after they've relocated Cloud Dancing's shoulder, Custer comes in and, and tells Sully that he has to leave. Sully's basically forced to leave, forcibly removed from the situation. Dr. Mike kind of has a moment where she says to Custer, like, how dare you do this to another human being? Yeah. She says that, and then she also says, this man saved my life. And it really plays into her motivations in this episode. But I, but I love that for Dr. Mike, it's more than her just being a morally right character because she's our main character and we want her, you know, she has to be the hero. But it's like, not only is it immoral for you to be treating another human like this, but it, but this man saved my life. Like, I owe him my life. And, and, the, and she'll say it later, like, this man saved all our lives because guess what? She ran out of quinine. And so it wasn't just her. It was Jake. It was Horace. It was, right. I, you know, I don't remember who else all got sick, but I mean, it was like a huge chunk of people in the town who wouldn't be alive if it weren't for cloud dancing. Back at the mercantile, Brian is playing the harmonica. So he still has this kind of fascination with it. And he, he says, there must be something wrong with this harmonica. You know, it's got some sour notes and This gets Lauren to play it, and he plays Beautiful Dreamer, in which it kind of looks kind of fake. I'm not going to lie. Like, you can definitely tell he's not actually playing it. (laughs) Beautiful Dreamer by Stephen Foster. Legend goes, or not legend, rumor goes that it was the last piece he ever composed, possibly days before his death. And even though maybe the playing looks fake, I think Orson Bean's eyes look so sad and it's a really good performance. Yeah, he plays it great. And, and Brian asks, you know, will you teach me? And Lauren says no. And then he's like, you know, do you want to buy it or not? And Olive offers a good in-between because she says, you know, you can work off the harmonica, help out at the store. And she says to Lauren, you know, I want you to play for the hurdy-gurdy. But he refuses in his grumpy old man fashion and walks away and takes his flask with him. There's an underlying tone that he's working through some things that are causing him not to be the most pleasant to be around. Drinking away his pain. He's not really dealing with it. Yeah. At the clinic, Dr. Mike again tries to persuade the reverend to take a stance on how cloud dancing is being treated. There is a lot of throwing around both last episode and this episode where she's throwing around the line like that's a lie because that's what got Sully kicked out of the barn is he called Custer a liar and here she says they beat cloud dancing last night and the reverend's like yeah but I heard he tried to escape which A I'm like okay but since when is that a good reason to beat someone up i mean i get it okay the military does their own thing but to me that should still be like that's horrible right but then she goes that's a lie the reverend and he says well were you there which is true none of them were there so they really don't know but they at the same time they do know and then he gives this speech about this is a civil issue not a spiritual issue 
which again, I am not well enough equipped to discuss the theological fallacies of this argument. And I think she does it well enough, but it really annoys me. She says, well, if enough of us protest, we might be able to get him released. I think he's really just, he's like, I, he does not want to pick a side one way or the other. His argument is the law is the government and the military is a part of the government. Therefore, it is not his job to step in. To which Dr. Mike replies, I thought you answered to a higher power. I like that. Which is like, ooh, it's a good line. And this is, I think this is more when I was questioning, like, why is she asking the reverend to do something? I think this is more when I was thinking that, even though I brought it up earlier. But yeah, I think there's the fact yeah. that she brings up a protest. She's trying to get and, some majority yeah, petition. rules. Right, yeah. right. They're practicing dancing. Robert E. knows Ingrid's name. How do you know if a girl likes you? Do you think this is good advice? I mean, he brings up good points of the way when they're around you and they look at you and you smile at you or whatever. I think, you know, he immediately jumps to you. I guess you're going to have to buy up all her tickets. <laughs> that seems like a big jump. Yeah, that's where I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> right. I would be a little creeped out if someone was like, I'm going to dance every single dance with you. <laughs> Like, is that a little possessive it's, or what? It's a bit much, yeah. <laughs> but old-fashioned, old-fashioned. It, it probably is a big compliment in the in old-fashioned. Like, I don't want you to dance with anybody else, so... But no, no, that's what I mean. That's like a negative focus. If we focus on, I don't want anyone else to dance with you, that's like, I feel like that's negative kind of possessive. But if we focus on, I want to dance with you as many times as I can, therefore every time, that's very complimentary. Right, it's true. And while Mike is asking Dr. E, Dr. E, who's that? <laughs> Doc Eli, he's back. <laughs> Dr. Mike is asking Robert E if he will sign her petition. Um, oh, Benji. <laughs> Benji's getting his five minutes of fame. <laughs> Benji, stop. Come here. I'm talking to you now. Dr. Mike asks Robert E if he will sign her petition concerning... Cloud Dancing's treatment. And in the meantime, she notices that Lauren is sitting by Maud's grave and he's drinking. And I think she she goes over there and I, I like this conversation because I I think about these things a lot, how people make assumptions of what others have have dealt with, gone through, suffered through. And he makes the assumption that because she's not married, she's never felt the kind of pain that he's experiencing. And she explains, you know, that she was engaged and that he died in a confederate prison and it's funny because of course lauren's response is like oh hand her the flask take a swig <laughs> like trying to relate and connect you know yeah i think she's trying to be supportive and comfort him in a way and we kind of get a hint too of why he's been struggling even maybe more than usual is that his wife loved to dance and they would have been married for 42 years around this time which of course would be hard to handle with no matter if she recently died or not. Yeah. But we are again interrupted because Brian informs us that they're going to shoot cloud dancing. And when I saw this, I'm like, oh, has it been two days? Because, right, we have this whole issue of we don't know how much time has passed. I'm like, oh, I guess it's been two days because that's what Custer said. But not exactly. She says that to him, you said two days. And he's like, I changed my mind. And the whole town's there to watch. They stand him in front of a firing line. Jake is a freaking jerk. She's like, there's no trial. The reverend actually stands up here and he's like, what is his crime? 
To which Jake responds, he's an Indian. He's gotta have done something to be shot for. Which I'm like, this is a man you treated yesterday. I wonder why they gave that line to him. Because interestingly, Hank is not in this episode. But I feel like that should have been a (laughs) Hank line. Horrible. That's something Hank would say. Maybe it was a Hank line. And for some reason, William Shockley had the day off or something. And so they were like, oh, we'll just give it to... You know, because I'm like, we've seen Jake in The Visitor where he was like, it's not that I don't want to help Robert E. It's just I'm worried about how it will look to everyone else. Right. But this is like straight up. And remember, Jake was one of the people who was sick too. So I really feel like that line was supposed to be a Hank line. And for some reason, Hank wasn't there. And so they gave it to Jake and it doesn't work for his character to me. Hmm. I think it's too harsh. Anyway, the whole thing is awful. The Reverend is holding Dr. Mike back. She's thrashing and screaming and Sully tries to convince Cloud Dancing to lie, but Cloud Dancing is like, I'm not going to die for a lie. Like, I'm going to stand with the truth. They shoot and it's apparently full of blanks because Custer... This doesn't have to be like a, a poor story point, but I am wondering from the character standpoint, like what does Custer gain from this? He sees who's against him. He sees how dedicated Cloud Dancing is to keeping silent. He proves that he's a threat or is it just a torture tactic to kind of psych Cloud Dancing out? Like I'm just not really sure what what the benefit is here. Is it just entertainment? I mean, it might be. It might be they wrote it in because Custer's like, you know what would be fun? Convince everyone I'm going to shoot this guy and then not. (laughs) Like, I'm not saying that that's not what he was doing, but it seems unclear. Yeah, no, and I walk through this these emotions as well of like, is it because he wanted to see if he was really lying to scare him? What's the purpose? We're not exactly certain. Except that Sully says, you know, it doesn't matter if he didn't get killed this time, like the next time Custer will kill him. There's probably a number of reasons, and I'm sure listeners too could could name other reasons possibly too, but it's not 100% given to us at this point. I mean, I think from an audience perspective, it's really just to be like, Custer's crazy. Like he's, he's totally out of control, which... Which plays into, historically, Custer was at certain points in, during his time in on the frontier, they said he behaved irrationally for no reason at all. And, and I would be willing to argue, like, this man survived the Civil War. He probably had some major undiagnosed, untreated PTSD, you know? Yeah. And he went from fighting in the in the Civil War to fighting on the frontier which as I said historically people were like he didn't adapt to it well and he was proud and he exaggerated things and he was desperately in love with his wife and really just wanted to be home with her but he had a job to do Mm. and he was a soldier and so you put all those things into play and it's like no wonder the guy has issues (laughs) yeah no wonder like this is the sign that Dr. Mike and Sully needed to be like, we can't let this happen. Right. We almost just let this happen and now we're not going to. And so maybe that's what it is. This is to trigger a response in our heroes to take action, but to take action in a big way. Because in the scene right before this, you know, Dr. Mike was getting people to sign the petition. The petition never comes back. Mm. 
why didn't she present it to him right then? Sure, maybe she didn't have enough signatures. She could have showed it to him and been like, if you shoot him right now, this petition is going straight to your commanding officer and it's gonna, there are going to be consequences, you know? But, but that's not what happens because he goes to shoot them. All of a sudden they're like, okay, we can't, you know, we're not doing this the diplomatic way. We have to go to the extreme and the extreme is we're breaking him out. Right. So in a roundabout kind <laughs> of way, she recruits the Reverend and Olive. So the hurdy-gurdy starts and Grace is selling tickets and Matthew brings money and he wants to buy all Ingrid's tickets. And she tells him he doesn't have enough money. <laughs> and he says, can I owe you? <laughs> Which I'm like, that's so sweet that Grace is like, here you go. Like, she doesn't even question it. She just, the Cooper kids. Everybody loves the Cooper kids. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and we see Ingrid in her pretty dress from Father's Day. Yep. Wow. It is the same dress. There's some handing off going on here because there's a shot of Sully walking away and then we see Robert E and he gets the keys from this army guy and is able to slip the keys to Sully in which we then switch over to this stable. It's basically a stable where they have Cloud Dancing locked up. Sully is being all sneaky and coming in and Cloud Dancing is chanting, which helps him because it's not as quiet i don't know if he would have been able to get away with it as well well i think sully's quiet but there's a a horse that gets anxious yeah and so i think it's actually more to cover up the horse kind of being uncomfortable with the fact that sully's climbing in right it draws the soldier's attention away from behind him so that sully can switch the keys in which he does so then we flash back to the hurdy gurdy and he is now in front of Dr. Mike giving her the quote-unquote medicine she asked for, in which we know is the key. (laughs) And Colleen asks if he will dance with her, in which he says, you know, maybe when he gets back, we'll see that come into play a little bit later. But Olive officially starts the hurdy-gurdy, and this is where we have all of the girls get asked to dance Except Ingrid, who's sitting all alone on the bench, and Matthew is on the other side being a chicken. (laughs) Yeah, not able to work up the courage to just walk across the dance floor and say hello. (laughs) Honestly, though, I'm glad I'm not a guy, because I would be so bad at that. I remember one time we went, I went swing dancing. That's not, that's like a very, like, Christian young person thing to do. We went swing dancing, and it's super awkward like that. Like, all the girls stand on the outside of the dance floor, and then you're just supposed to wait until a guy asks you to dance, which is, like, super awkward and unnerving because there is that moment, basically, that happens to Ingrid where you're like, I'm standing here awkwardly because nobody (laughs) wants to dance with me. And you can't really dance with yourself swing dancing, so... (sighs) Yeah. And then there's me, who I went to my first dance... And a boy asked me to dance and I said no. And he said, why? And I said, I'm too scared. <gasps> I feel like I uh, relate to Matthew here. Yeah. I mean, I, that was seventh grade for me. Matthew's, how old is he? <laughs> Older. Almost, that's at least 16, sure. right? Yeah. But this is the first girl he's probably ever talked to. <laughs> or not talked to. <laughs> Did you notice that Horace is playing like a stoneware jug? <laughs> Yeah, he's playing, uh, I had a little brown jug, little brown jug come into my head because that's exactly what he's playing. He's playing a 
brown jug. It's very funny and very Horace-esque. Well, do you know what it reminded me of? I saw the prop and I was like, do you think that's the same prop from Bad Water? Yeah, that they no. Put the moonshine in? I thought that too. It looks <laughs> exactly like that. Yep. He probably shouldn't yeah. drink it. There's mercury in that. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, I thought that was funny. And Jake is playing, we didn't really talk about it earlier, but he's playing an instrument called... Oh, I know what it is. It's a... Constantine, Constant, Con- Concertina, which is ironically a cousin in the musical instrument world, cousins of both the accordion and the harmonica. Whoa. Whoa, because the harmonica is also talked about in here. I thought that was cool. I think the most notable ending of this scene is as Dr. Mike makes her way to the stable, Custer is dancing with a girl and he notices her leaving. Right. And Brian wants Lauren to play the harmonica for him. And there's a very sweet moment where he says, he asks Lauren, you know, do you think there's music in heaven? And it's like they're thinking the same thing, right? They're thinking of people that they wish were there. Even whether you're a young child or an older man, you can still have that same sentiment. At the stable... Dr. Mike is seeing to cloud dancing, which I guess they just let her in there. And she keeps kind of awkwardly smiling back at the guard as she's reaching into her doctor's bag. Nothing suspicious about that. <laughs> yeah. Pulling out the the key, which the lock, I, I feel like the lock was too quiet. Like I almost yeah. wanted cloud dancing to like fake a cough or fake a like you know a groan of pain or something yeah to cover the click because there wasn't really a click and then she pretends to leave her stethoscope he goes the guard goes back to get it for her as she does that she switches the keys back which is great except she buries the other one in the hay which part of me is like what if they find the two keys yeah, I thought that- I guess it doesn't it doesn't matter. The point is that he gets away. Right. Cloud dancing attacks that one guard. The two guards outside come running in. Sully jumps them. <laughs> A shirtless Sully shows up on the scene with war paint, which at first I was like, wait, why is he gotta be shirtless? Why do you have to mention that? He's shirtless and he has face paint on because they want him to look like an Indian. Yeah. Yeah. Just making sure you didn't have different motives in mentioning that he was shirtless. Okay. I mean, you know that they had different motives in making him shirtless. (laughs) Well, yes. So then Sully kind of fake, (laughs) fake ties Dr. Mike up. Moving on. Exactly. Moving on. Sully fake ties Dr. Mike up so that it'll look like she was not in on this scheme. And unfortunately, Custer notices that there are no guards out front, finds Dr. Mike tied up, and also sees Cloud Dancing and Sully leaving. He actually shoots at them. And Sully, being the cool man that he is, chucks a pitchfork. (laughs) Chucks a pitchfork and hits him in the arm. Yes. Which, this is, again, how does he not cry out in pain because it looks like it impales part of you i've talked about impaled. <laughs> yeah <laughs> sorry anytime an olaf reference yes it is but anytime anyone says impaled that's what i think of which we should mention that dr mike kind of cries out when custer comes in and cloud dancing and sully are leaving which you know doesn't exactly help her case but it probably was painful i don't i don't know i think people back then just had a higher point 
tolerance of pain due to the fact that there was a lot less measures to help with pain management than we have today. They didn't have ibuprofen, Advil, and Aleve. (laughs) Or things a lot stronger than that, yes. (laughs) But before we see what happens to Custer, we are back at our lively hurdy-gurdy where we see Olive and the Reverend kind of they're like looking around to see, you know, what's happening. Is there anything suspicious going on or is there any I think they're looking back? to see if Dr. Mike is back. Yes, exactly, exactly. Ingrid, however, is still alone. And at this point, she can't take it anymore. So she runs off crying. And, and now Matthew starts to feel bad, apparently, because <laughs> he follows her and gives <laughs> her his handkerchief, bandana, whatever. Because, because well, what really happens is... She says, what's name? She knows his name. She says, I already know your name. She means what's the name of what he gave her, which was a bandana. And they they know of each other at this point, but they haven't really talked. And so he finally fesses up that he has bought all of her tickets in which she, yes, it's, she does. She takes it as a compliment. Like, oh, all this time I've been thinking no one wants to dance with me. So let's go dance. And of course... We don't have Corbin Blue break out in song. <laughs> I don't dance. <laughs> I don't dance. I know you can. Not a chance. No. I wonder if anyone's getting any of our references. Like, basically, we've referenced Frozen. Slide home, you score, swinging on the dance floor. High school musical. <laughs> We're showing our age, that's for sure. <laughs> well. Wait, there's there's a Fred Astaire song. I don't dance. Don't ask don't me. Ask yeah, okay, let's go with I that. That makes dance. us sound classier. Well, that makes don't me sound classier than me. bringing up High School Musical too. I won't <laughs> dance, madam, with you. So they head out to the hurdy-gurdy, which is really bad because when you start singing that, I just think about Step Up, which also... <laughs> I love Step Up 3. That's like one of the best, it is one of the best, best dances ever because it's all one shot. It is pretty good Allison Stoner and Adam Savani Dr. Mike (laughs) back to Dr. Quinn (laughs) regular break from this programming Dr. Mike is wrapping up Custer's arm I wish she just would have let it rot but she's a nicer person (gasps) he is actually accuses her of helping Cloud Dancing and Sully because he heard her cry out this warning and she says no you know it was a cry of fear and he like blatantly like calls her out and says, you're a traitor, in which she responds, I dedicated my life to repairing the damage that men like you bring on this world. What are your thoughts about that? I think from a story perspective, I like this scene because my expectations are that they are going to underestimate her because she's a woman and that it's kind of going to be like this, like, oh, she couldn't have been involved. She's a woman. But I kind of like that it subverts my expectations of them to underestimate her to the fact that he's like, I can't prove that you were involved, but I know that you were and I'm not going to forget it. Because I really expected him just to be like, well, did you see anything? How did they get in here? You know, like I expected him to kind of like grill her and be like, you know, you're useless. You know, this is why I didn't want a woman involved. You know, like I thought it was, I think I kind of expected it to be that. But instead, he doesn't underestimate her. And I, I, yeah, I'm not, I don't want to condone what Custer did, but he is just doing his job. His job was to keep the peace between natives and frontiersmen. And he's not going to be able to do that as long as the dog soldiers are running free and attacking frontier camps. 
So from that aspect, obviously I don't agree with the fact that he's like trying to get the information on the dog soldiers by any means necessary, but it's all an interesting perspective. And then the irony is, I don't think we really talk about it, but my assumption is that Cloud Dancing can't go back to the reservation now. Now Cloud Dancing has to become a dog soldier because he's a fugitive. Hmm. I didn't think about that. But she leaves the barn and Sully is outside and I want to yell at them both because I'm like, dude, this is not a safe place for you to be talking. Literally, Custer is inside the barn. (laughs) Yeah, but I love that he knows her and he knows that she needs to know that he's okay and that Cloud Dancing's okay and that they're both all right. And he does. He informs her. And then he tells her that she has the courage of a warrior in which she... She says, Cloud Dancing said this. And then there's a pause. And he says, no, I did. And then she smiles. And then Sarah pukes. <laughs> I didn't puke. That, that's a compliment I'll accept. It's not too cheesy. No, it is cheesy. Courage of a warrior? Come on now. Too bad my name means courageous warrior. The courage of the warrior. No, what's cheesy is him going, no, I said it. That's what's cheesy. Well, you know, he could have lied, but he didn't. I like it. And at the hurdy-gurdy, I appreciate that they show, don't tell, right? In storytelling, we don't need her to go and whisper and be like, everyone's okay. We just get head nods all around. Nod to Olive, nod to the Reverend, nod to Robert E. It's all going to be fine. And now they can enjoy the dance. And the Reverend asked Olive to dance. And all I could think was single Reverend, single woman. All the gossip is about to go around this town. Yeah. And it's kind of ironic, too, because the Reverend was kind of against dancing at all. I thought of it more as like a celebratory dance of like, oh, we were able to help. Yeah. No, I'm sure it is partially that. But I'm like, have you ever been to a small town where two single people do anything together? And it's like, they're going to get married. Right. Right. Lauren decides to play his harmonica and they play the song beautiful dreamer borrowed from our kind child brian (laughs) it's so cute where he the way they've shot it that brian's like in the background like leaning on the fence like just Mm -hmm. so enamored with him playing the harmonica that's what i look like when i see someone playing the harmonica i just think harmonicas are magical instruments and we end with i feel bad for colleen Because I don't know why Sully said he'd be back. But I guess they didn't set it up to know that Sully wouldn't, like... I don't think they anticipated Custer, yeah, probably seeing him, so... Oh, probably, yeah, they probably thought they would have a couple hours of not knowing, have some, the knocked out guards in the barn. But Dr. Mike offers to dance with Colleen, and she smiles, and... I like that there's kind of this hint where, like, why doesn't Matthew dance with her? Because if you remember in the pilot, Colleen had asked Matthew if he would yeah. dance with her at, or was it the pilot at the Christmas, at the Christmas dance that they don't get to go to? Or was it, I think actually it was Founder's Day, the Father's Day episode. She, at before the dad got there, she asked Matthew if he would dance with her at the Founder's Day celebration. But there's a hint that, like, oh, Matthew's sitting this one out. And she's like, he's sitting all of them out. Cause, and we got a cute shot of, like, Ingrid's actually totally okay to just sit and talk with Matthew, which I think is very sweet. And then Dr. Mike 
dances with Colleen and they're all dancing and smiling yes. and it's happy. Grace and Robert E and Reverend and Olive and yeah. 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 And that's the end of the episode. That's the end. I get to do my favorite scene first this time so you don't steal it from out under me. That also would be assuming the assumption that I've chosen. I've decided. <laughs> I know what you think I'm going to pick, but I'm not going to pick that. I probably would go with... <laughs> I'm supposed to be proving you wrong right now. There's a lot. Like, there's a couple, like, little scenes that happen that I really like. Like, there's a couple of them that I could probably name. I, I know it's not really, like, a real scene. It's just, like, a little tidbit. But I really like when Brian says, do you think there's music in heaven with Lauren? I just really like their relationship. And part of that's because I've seen the whole series. And so I don't want to give anything away. But I, I enjoy their relationship and I think it's a very sweet thing, like I said, that they can make a connection that no matter how old you are, you can still feel the loss of somebody makes you think about them in, in good times and such. So I guess I'll go with that. I like that scene too. I'm torn either between when Cloud Dancing and Sully, like Sully tells him to lie because mm-hmm. he doesn't want him to get shot. Yeah. And Cloud Dancing is like, no, I know, I know the truth and goodbye, my friend. Like that part is like really good. But I also really... Actually, no, yeah, I'm going to pick that part just because yeah. I, I think the with, the with how high the tension is and the performance, Larry Sellers is great in this episode. Like, he's definitely the, the standout performance in this episode. And just that friendship that really I feel like we've only even just brushed the surface of that relationship, like Cloud Dancing and Sully, but um, just, just feeling the weight of that moment and the, the powerlessness that Sully feels but his determination and and care for his friend. Yeah. That's one of the ones I was I enjoyed as well. Where are we going to put this in our ranking? I will say sorry Kel, uh not much doctoring in this episode. Interestingly enough, it's pretty similar to a Cowboy's Lullaby didn't have a lot of doctoring and I'm wondering if it's because writer Joseph Anderson I think he prefers to do like six high stakes stories versus like the actual medical stuff i did think that but it makes a lot of sense once you say that there's some good character moments in this episode i don't know that this episode for me has a super strong message you know other than doing the right thing and protecting those who can't protect themselves but like overall it doesn't have a super overarching theme, but it has some nice character relationship moments. I think the writing in this one was pretty strong. The story was strong. I agree with that. Stance. I think it's better stakes than the epidemic. It feels similar to Law of the Land in that we have that same sort of storyline of like someone possibly being executed. Right. <laughs> I don't know. Do you like it better than Law of the Land? I don't know why these decisions are always so hard for me. Which do you think you're more likely to watch again, Law of the Land or this one? Probably this one. No, that's a good question. That helped me decide, actually. Yeah, I think so, too. So last week was Running Ghost. Do you like this one better than Running Ghost? No. Okay. Do we want to put it at the new, number. as the new number six after Running Ghost before Law of the Land? Yeah. Let's do it. Because I feel like this is a pretty memorable episode. Yeah. I think it's an important one, too. Character development is not super weighty, but we have good character moments. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. All right. New number six. And speaking 
of well-loved and well-enjoyed episodes. Next episode, guys, we're taking on Happy Birthday, which for any and all of you beloved Dr. Quinn fans, you know it's a good one. We're excited to talk about it, even though I feel like I'm probably going to cringe for half of it. <laughs> Still looking forward to it. We would love for you guys to tune you're gonna, in. You're going to cringe talking about it? You prefer to watch it than talk about it? Yeah. <laughs> Something about talking about it is just going to feel weird, but it's a really funny episode, a sweet episode, a good episode. So make sure to rewatch it before you listen to our next podcast, just so you can be in on the know with us. And if you're wondering how you can get in contact with us, we would love if you would check out our website. It is notaladypodcast.weebly.com. You also can reach out to us on any of the social media platforms that we have, which include Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And don't forget that we always do lessons at the beginning of our episodes, so make sure you write in and let us know about that. We could feature you on our next episode. Anything else I forgot to mention? No, that's great. We always love hearing from you guys, whether it's just to say hello that you listened to the episode or writing in with your thoughts and opinions. We really look forward to reading those and discussing them together. So thank you guys so much for continuing to participate and engage in the conversation with us. So... We will see you guys in the next episode and we hope that you have a great rest of your day or night or whatever time you're listening to this. (laughs) Bye guys.